really praising the Lord. <laughs> it's like, oh man, what a passage, right? Lots, lots to cover. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we jump to uh, seeing this passage of Ecclesiastes this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the clear message of Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9. We pray that you would help us to not only see it, but to hear it, to understand it, and to live differently because of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may have noticed a repeated phrase right there in that passage. As the preacher continued to look at these different examples, he usually ended with, this is sickening, right? (laughs) Have you ever come around to feeling that phrase go in your mind, this is sickening? I often feel that around July 1st when I receive my tax bill in the mail. I go, this is sickening, right? You're paying for your car taxes, your home taxes, whatever it may be, you look at it with your money when it comes to big bills, often they make your gut just turn. They are sickening. In light of what we've seen in the last few days just here within our nation and across the world, we could also look at the news headlines and go, this is sickening, right? There was something called a debate that happened this past week. It was more like a debacle. Uh, if, you're, if we're honest, it was a bunch of adults on a stage trying to outvoice each other. Uh, and there, we have long lost the day where a genuine debate actually happened. You know, I was, I was listening to somebody who was talking about the political debates uh, between Abraham Lincoln and his, uh, uh, the person he was running against in the 1800s. And they said that his political debates would actually go on for hours upon hours where there would be crafted out language, there would be uh, illustrations and thought out implications. Now we turn on Fox News and people get 30 seconds to respond to somebody else's critique. Have you ever tried to respond to somebody's critique in 30 seconds? Yeah, it doesn't happen, right? You get to say like Tim Scott did a couple of words and then your, your time's up, your bell has rung, right? When we look at outside of that, even what we saw happen in Russia this past week was absolutely sickening. Somebody who is a political foe to the powers that be who has suddenly gone and has disappeared. And we have found out that his plane was actually shot down by a missile, but it was not whatsoever a coincidence. We live in sick times where there is a lot of corruption and corruption particularly motivated by greed and wealth. Unfortunately, this is not, as Ecclesiastes 3 would say, anything new under the sun. So as Christians, how do we live in a world where there's corruption, greed, and a number of different influences and factors driving people in a way that glorifies God? Can we find enjoyment? I think this passage this morning argues for us that we can indeed find enjoyment in the things of life, the gifts that God gives to us when we rightly know him. So in light of a world full of corruption, greed, and different influences, today I want to talk through those things and point us to the hope that we have in the gospel alone. It's only by knowing Jesus and being known by him that we can live in a world that's full of chaos. So you're coming to this passage this morning. I want you guys to work hard 
and enjoy the gifts of God despite the world that we live in. Work hard and enjoy the gifts of God despite the world that we live in. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the author has presented us with a number of things that promise more than they deliver, right? Like our politicians do today and our our money does. We've seen at least four highlights from Ecclesiastes that wisdom, wealth, work, and possessions often promise more than they can deliver. Even at times, the reality of time promises more than what we can actually see delivered. And today, we come to this passage where the, pre- the preacher is revisiting an area that he has brought some assessment to, uh, the area of wealth. And money often promises more than it can deliver. And this is true for individuals as well as nations. And so there are essentially uh, two chunks that I want to take from this passage. Uh, if you look at Ecclesiastes, at times it can be hard to ascertain what the actual structure of a passage is because of its proverbial format or uh, a, a, like what looks like a, a, uh, a buffet of ideas where you have something here, something there, something over here, and then back over here again. So uh, what I want to do for us is take the common theme from chapter 5, verse 8, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, and say, here's how we can see what the preacher's trying to drive home to us. Because while there are different scenarios in these passages, what we're going to find is that there's a common thread. And the common thread is that despite the chaos of the world, gifts of life are only enjoyed with God. Despite the chaos of the world, gifts in life are only really are realized in God. So first, let's look at the reality of a world full of corruption. A world full of corruption. We can see our modern day examples, right? We can look to Russia and see the the corruption that happened just this week. But I want you to look at Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Just in these two verses, we hear uh, a passage that rings loud and true to us today. And here's the reality from this passage, guys. There is no utopian society. We all long for a place where everything is perfect and we have every resource that we could ever imagine right at our disposal. But here's the reality. We're longing for something that exists only in God's creative nature. We want a perfect society. It only exists with the Lord. This side of heaven, because of the fall, we have a society that's going to continue in brokenness because sin is reigning until the Lord Jesus comes back to rule and reign in his eternal kingdom. We see things like oppression of the poor, right? Oppression of the poor. Now, in America, we may not see so much oppression of the poor as we do in third world countries, have you ever had the opportunity to travel to a different place with a different socioeconomic structure? Anybody? Yeah, okay. So I've been to a couple of places. I, I love going to the Caribbean. Right? I've been to St. Thomas. Aruba. Aruba is weird. Anybody been to Aruba? Right. Okay, here's my thing with Aruba, right? And this is just a side note. I'm sorry for your side note. But you expect it to be, like, all tropical, right, and, like, nice and humid and all of that. And then you get down there, and it's hot, but it's windy, and it's, like, desert land, Right? It is a weird place, but it is also very enjoyable. So the beaches are amazing. The people are, are very kind. 
but just a weird place. Been to places like it, I went to Turkey in, back in 2017. Uh, I stayed in Istanbul, and oh my goodness, you could see two very different worlds, the Asian side of Istanbul versus the European side of Istanbul. If you've ever been over there, the, the, the European side is like very built up and very like modern, where the Asian side is very historic and almost, in a sense, decrepit and run down. Uh, and I found this interesting. In the city of Istanbul, the population is something like 24 million people. Okay? That's twice the size of New York City. So if you've been in New York City recently and felt like, oh my goodness, there's too many people, take that and double it in Turkey. That's, that's pretty outstanding. It's, it's wild, right? It kind of makes New York almost, in a sense, seem small, which don't tell a New Yorker right, right? They, they will not like that picture. They'll be like, we are the biggest city in the world. If you've been to other places, you may see this passage and go, yes, that's absolutely reality. You don't necessarily get it as a tourist, but if you know people who have lived in different places for a period of time, they'll talk to you about corruption, or about the oppression of the poor, about injustice. Now, just because we have injustice and oppression that looks different than these third world places, it does not mean that it, it's somehow... Uh, any better for them or any worse for us. We are all under the reign of sin, which highlights to us this reality that broken people love what? They love brokenness. So perversion of justice, of righteousness, of oppression of the poor, the preacher tells us not to be astonished by this situation. You know, it's, it's hard when we hear these words. Because we look at things going on in our world, and it's hard not to feel astonished by things that have happened. And there may be even a sense in which if we become so numb to the world news that, that happens around us, that, that that may be an unhealthy trait for us. We need to indeed be sensitive and empathetic of people's real struggles. But this is not new news. This is not a new situation. As Ecclesiastes 3 taught us, everything that has happened under the sun, has happened beforehand. So, there's going to be oppression. There's going to be injustice. He says, here he gives the example of one official protecting another official. Right? This is the idea, uh, particularly the, the officials that are represented here are supposed to represent something to this audience like the judicial process, right? They are to be those that uphold the law objectively, with, re- with clarity, without any bias. But they are those that are actually, instead of holding up the law and objectively holding on to its truth and, and not showing any bias, there are those that are actually protecting those that have their interests aligned with them. They say, we're going to take care of this guy. And it's often around either money or influence that these things happen, right? If you watch, like, any Netflix series on, like, leadership structures and corruption, politics, they, there's often those two things happening, right, where money is doing something or influence is doing something. And these people are battling for their uh, opportunity to have significance, right, to have their, uh, their moment on the stage, They're protecting one another insofar as their interests align. Once the moment of interest divide, we're no longer willing to protect you. 
Verse 9 historically has actually been a verse that's very hard to interpret. It reads, the prophet from the land is taken by all, the king is served by the field. You'll notice in verse 8 that it mentions the province, and then we have here the land in verse 9. What the preacher's trying to drive us to is that this happens both on a local level and a national level, like a small capacity and in a large capacity. And so while these two things happen, right, here's like the reality, right? So we'll think about the United States for a moment, right? Connecticut is very small, (laughs) right? Very small. I think we have a population of like two and a half million people, something along those lines. Uh, You you go down to Florida, they are very large, right? There's also, I know the difference of the weather. I know, I know, I know a lot of you would like to escape the snow, except for Jerry. Jerry loves the snow. We're praying for her. there, there's the difference of, yes, indeed, location, but we're all still, Connecticut and Florida, still part of these United States, right? But what's culturally acceptable in Connecticut may be culturally not acceptable in Florida, right? Here in, in Connecticut, people are kind of direct and to the point. If you drive anywhere, right, you may have realized this. It, you get cut off, or if you don't move fast enough, you don't turn when the light turns, people, they do sign language to you. They, they're trying to encourage you and say really nice things to you, right? Or they're hooting and hollering and literally beeping their horns at you, right? <laughs> and if you think Connecticut's bad, then you go to Massachusetts and you see what real drivers are like out there, right? <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> and then you hear about the Rhode Islanders and they're just struggling with the reality that they have to drive anything more than 15 minutes to get to anything, Okay. We're praying for them, too, our dear brothers and sisters in Rhode Island. (laughs) The reality is that while there may be different settings, we're under the same united umbrella in our identity, but we can't necessarily translate everything perfectly from the whole to the individual level. So while there are similarities, right, we could say, okay, hey, you know what? There are bad things in Connecticut. Can I, can I tell you something, right? My grandparents do the whole snowbird thing. They go to Florida too. They say there's bad things down in Florida too. I know, I know that may be hard for some of you to believe, right? Somebody may listen to this sermon at some point and say, I'm from Florida and I am offended. I am sorry for offending you, but you're still bad, <laughs> okay? There's still bad here and there. There's still sin at work here and there. Yet our situations are, are definitely different. Right? Think political landscape. Connecticut is a deeply blue democratic society. Florida is quite the opposite of that. More red, more conservative, more Republican-leaning. Different realities, yet united in the same cooperation. So what the preacher's getting to here is, though our individual situations may be different, there's still one underlying issue that exists for the reality of humanity. Oppression, injustice, and corruption. More often than not, we can say that those who are trying to lead us are still sinful at best. Right? Now, this is not an opportunity for me to go, now don't trust any of your your leaders above you. It is hard. We as New Englanders especially have a hard time when anybody tells us to do anything. 
I understand that, right? I feel that. When somebody tells me, like, I should be doing something differently, immediately I'm, like, defensive, right? Now, friends, the scripture gives us this reality of corruption, and it, it continues to tell us to exercise obedience and submissiveness as it comes to our governing authorities. Like Romans 13, and Jesus' words in the Gospels, Romans 13 tells us that we are to be subject to our governing authorities. Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. Guys, I'm not telling you to disobey just for the sake of disobedience, but what I am going to tell you this is that your kingdom, first and foremost, is the kingdom of God. Then you belong to the United States. That, for the Christian, that is your orientation. You first are a person that is created in the image of God, and then you belong to him, and then he places you in your context. Now, we should do everything we can to see this context thrive. But we also need to make sure that in that we are not so anti-establishment, anti-government that we cause more rebellion. Big principle, guys, like our statement of faith would say, we, uh, we submit to the governing authorities insofar as it does not go contrary to the things of God. Where God's word is clear, we live by God's word. Where it's not so clear, we live by its principle as best as we can. And when it comes to being a citizen of this nation, I think it's important for us to be proud to be Americans, to be proud of the freedoms that we have, but to remember ultimately that we belong to the Lord. So, are we the land of the free, the home of the brave? Yes and amen. I think we need to maybe humble ourselves a bit to see the reality of every nation and every people under the curse of sin, that we are not the only example of freedom and bravery. We should set the way. We should lead by example. But this side of heaven, we're sinners who need mercy and justice. And we are accountable to the Lord. So the reality of corruption is there. Do we give up? Do we stop belonging to? Do we, do we just give up being part of this blue state and move to a red state so we can be aligned with conservative ideology? That might be appropriate for you. I'm going to say I'm going to stay here, preach the gospel, and die. Because okay? I think the Lord has placed me here. Now, that doesn't have to be for you. But I do think that we need to be beacons on a hill. And that often when it's going hard, the first response isn't always the best response. Running away isn't always the answer. But sticking in isn't always the answer either. Exercise prudence, discernment, seek the Lord in your situation. Okay, then we see as the passage continues, the preacher tries to point us to the reality of wealth and how it never satisfies. Behind the, the sin of corruption, behind the sin of greed, behind the sin of Pursuing wealth for the sake of wealth is really one underlying fact that people are never satisfied. Look at verse 10. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the one who consumes them multiply. 
What then is the profit of the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. The reality we hear about the greed of wealth here is that it's never enough. Notice what he says here. The, the, the one who has silver never has enough silver. Right? The one who uses their silver has to have what? More income. I actually was reading an interview of someone who was uh, interviewing a really wealthy person in, in England. And they asked him, you know, what becomes the top, like, the amount that you feel comfortable with that you, you don't need anymore, right? He'd been a very successful business person, and he had accumulated a lot of wealth in his life. And when they said, when do you stop? He said, well, there's never enough. I just thought that that was really interesting. Here's somebody who possesses millions upon millions of dollars, and their answer with what's enough money was there's never enough. And when he actually started talking to him about some of his lifestyle habits, what he found out was that actually as, as much as he was worth, he was spending almost as much as he was making in. And it just made me go, wow, if he's making that much money, what is he buying, <laughs> right? Like, that was my first question. It was, like, probably real estate. That was probably, like, a big way that you can send, spend money. But I was also like, what does this guy do for fun, <laughs> right? Like, does he, like, race cars? Does he, like, go to the best golf courses in, in the entire world? Like, wh what is his thing, right? Wealth in itself is never satisfied. Now, we can almost see this reality in our own context, right? We may not be millionaires that live in Britain, but are you the kind of person where you go, hey, you know what? I've got some money, but I could, I could use more. I think most of the people in the room, if we were honest, would probably say it'd be nice to have 5 to 10% more income than what we currently have. I think that would be true. But driving these types of people is a never-ending dissatisfaction. For them, more money doesn't equal more freedom. It actually equals more work. And what does this lead to? As the preacher ends in verse 12, less sleep. Right? Now, maybe, you know, maybe you've been in a situation. I remember when Rachel and I first got married. Uh, I was working as a pastor and managing a Christian bookstore working at a, and working at a golf course. Right. <laughs> yeah, three very different worlds, by the way. Um, but there was a lot of time that was spent in each of those categories, right? At when I was managing a bookstore, I was required to work at least 45 hours at minimum, and often they would be more like 60-hour work weeks. Because if somebody calls out sick, you have to cover, right? You're in charge of everybody and everything that's going on in that particular store. There were other settings there in pastoral ministry. You're getting calls from people at 8 o'clock at night. They're saying, I am in the, an immediate crisis. I need some, some counsel. I need some help, right? Now, situations abound. And uh, working in a golf course on the weekends, it was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go out to drive, to be at the course for 6 o'clock, to go and cut grass for the entire Saturday day. It was a lot of work. There was not a lot of sleep going on in my life. And I felt like I was stuck in this cycle. Where it was like, 
you get a paycheck, you're barely scraping by, and you got to get back to work, then you get to sleep for a few hours and go back. Now, that's not it for everybody, but we can get here, and we could have, Rachel and I could have stayed in that place if we lived in a way where we were never satisfied with what the Lord had given to us. We had opportunities to, like, go and buy a house. We were young and married. We were renting a place. And I just had to say, hey, we're not buying a house right now because we can't afford that. We're going to continue to rent our little measly apartment that costs us $714 a month and includes all of our stuff. We're going to stay there because that's good. We can afford that right now. And then the preacher gives us two illustrations about corruption and greed. He gives us this picture of the the first person in chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. There's a sickening tragedy, he says, that I've seen under the sun. Wealth that's kept by its owner to his harm. Now, there's those that hold on to their wealth like it's everything. Now, what happens in this case, there's a man, he, he keeps his wealth. Verse 14 tells us that he loses his wealth in a bad venture. This is some sort of bad business practice where he has gained and worked his entire life to have some sort of savings, and then he gets an opportunity, and he takes his opportunity, and what happens? It doesn't multiply like the promises that were made to him. Indeed, in fact, what actually happens is he loses everything. He loses everything, and in light of this, his context was that he had a son, and the legacy he had hoped to build was to make money and pass it on to his child. But the reality that he faced was that he made money and he took a bad venture of business and he lost everything and he left his son and himself empty-handed in the process. We've heard these stories before. The preacher concludes by saying, he came from his mother, as he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration and sickness and anger. He pursued the next thing. He wanted the next opportunity to make more money, and he was left with nothing. And then in chapter 6, we see a story of a man who also has a tragedy. In verse 1, here's a tragedy I've observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself, but God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and sickening tragedy. And a man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility and he goes in darkness and his name is shrouded in darkness. Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place? All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet The appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eyes see than wandering desires. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. 
So we get this example of the guy who invests badly and he loses everything and he leaves with nothing. But then we see this other picture of basically two situations. Someone who's fathered 100 children. By the way, this is hyperbole that the preacher is using. He's exaggerating his point. He's saying it could be like pursuing wealth is like having a bunch of children and then not being happy with that, living many years and dying in such a way that your children don't even have a burial for you. This would be like the ultimate shame in the ancient Near East culture. For the preacher, the family unit represented so much to the, pr- to, the, like, to the individual. Their legacy was whether or not they would have somebody to carry on their name. And to have a hundred children, to live many years, but to endlessly pursue wealth in such a way that he doesn't even relate to his children, that when he dies, his children want nothing to do with him, is the ultimate mark of shame on this individual. He's saying this is what it's like when you pursue wealth. But then he goes on to say, too, it's also like a person who lives a thousand years twice, <laughs> right? Lives two multi-generational lifetimes, right? Lives them. But what does he do? He doesn't experience happiness. Why? What is the root issue with all of these examples? It's a lack of satisfaction. It's a lack of satisfaction. They could live long. They could have all the things. They could have a family that they've built up. And if you're still working for wealth, what does wealth do? It promises more than it can deliver. It promises more than it can deliver. Now, this is what we often see in people. The conclusion being darkness, shame, anger, hunger. So what are we supposed to do with this really sad, dark reality? I think a couple of principles come to my mind. One is remember to live your life in balance. A a couple of weeks ago, we talked directly to, to people as we thought of wealth, right? There's a place where especially guys have this tendency to work so hard that they don't spend any time with their families, right? I don't think that that's merely just a guy issue, by the way. I think ladies can do that too, where you work so hard that you don't actually have time with those that are the closest to you, those that should matter the most to you. The paycheck isn't worth it, relationally. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard commonly in objections with people who are pursuing living a certain way and working their tails off is I want to give my children a life that I never had. And I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I want people like that to really look into their hearts for a moment. When you say you want them to have a life that you never had, is it really about the things that you didn't have or is it about the relationships that you lacked? Because I can tell you that I would much rather have time with people that I love than have things. Why? Because, well, things like my iPad, my guitar, I I love my guitar, but it's going to rot away. You want to really get to my heart? I love my truck. (laughs) 
But here's the thing, that, that thing's going to rust out. And it's going to need all sorts of new stuff. No matter how much money I throw into it, it's going to fall apart. I can't take it with me. I love being able to say that I could pass on a financial legacy to my children. But here's the thing. Money runs out. And even if it lasts into multiple generations, it will have an end date. Don't work for the things. Work for the moments that you can have to spend with your family. And then when you actually get your day off, Friend, hear this. Take it and be with those that you love. And don't think that I'm sitting here preaching as somebody who has the perfect work-life family balance. I'm not. I am still a sinner who struggles with this myself, spending more time with my kids. And being a dad, I've, I've realized something, that I can't go back. I can't go back and get those hugs. I can't go back and get those moments to pray over my kids. I can't rewind time to hold their hand, to kiss the boo-boo, to spend those stinking, never-ending hours watching those stupid TV shows. I can't go back. Friends, we can't. We can't rewind time. And if you get yourself to the point where you go, oh man, I wish I had taken advantage of that, you're already, you've already lost it. A guy I really look up to is sharing a story about his early childhood with his dad and saying that he, you know, he remembers going on a, a trip and being scared and asking his dad if he could climb into bed with him and mom. And, and his dad gave the ultimate response and said, of course, son, there's going to be a day when you don't want your dad around. And later on in his life, he had the same opportunity when he took his son to Cooperstown, to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And his son was scared. And he said, Dad, would it be okay if I come and, and, and sit with you and sleep in here so that I'm not afraid? And he overwhelmed, wept tears, and said, of course, son. There's going to be a day where you're not going to want me around. Friends, your family is not worth 10 more hours of work this week. That's a full day you can't get back with them. Take the moment to spend the time with those that you love. There are times where as a, p a pastor I've gone and said, I wish that I spent more time with, with some people that have passed, passed on. Even members of, our, uh, of the church, I, go, I wish that I had spent some more time caring for this person in this moment of their need. It's just not worth it to not have the opportunity to be there. Now, you can't do everything. Okay? So this is not me saying, come in and do everything. Take advantage of the opportunity you have to live in real balance to set work aside, to finish work, leave it at work, and be with people who you care about. And friends, live with this principle in light of that. You can't take it with you. You can't. You can't take it with you. So if you can't take it with you, 
Maybe the best next thing is to give it to somebody that you can. When you're gone, they can hold on to it. They can cherish it, right? Our Dave uh, recently opened up a, a birthday gift that he had gotten from my mother-in-law, Sue. And it was a, uh, a thing that his grandpa had written to him when he was right before he passed away. Was, he said, don't open this till your 63rd birthday. And, of course, Dave is the guy to do that. He is the only person I know I would have been like, oh, i got to open this up right now. And he holds on to it, and he saw it. And it was this note that his grandpa had written to him on a piece of bark and talking about fishing and, and some times that they had. He didn't get to take on all of those exact moments, but he got to pass them on. And now Dave's got them in this really cool picture box, and we get to look at them and be reminded of how impactful his grandpa was on his life. We can pass things on. We can't pass everything on, but what we definitely know is that nothing goes with us. We return as we come. There is corruption, there's greed, there's guilt in the world. What's the solution? It's in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Here's what I've seen to be good, says the preacher. It's appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he is also allowed to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Friends, in a corrupt world, we can have joy. In a corrupt world, we can have joy. How do we have joy? By appreciating what the Lord gives to us. Notice he says, it's appropriate to eat, drink, and experience the good of your labor. Now, we know that there are extremes of all of these things, right? We've, we can highlight corruption. We can highlight greed. We can work too hard. We can spend not enough time with our family. But there are also ways that we can enjoy the things that God has given to us. It's not in these cases, all one way and not the other way. There is indeed joy that we can find in our circumstances. Rachel and I were reflecting on just how we both really love what we do. And there are times where, you know, it, your, your job is, is hard and your vocation is hard and you go, man, it'd be a lot easier if I didn't have to deal with all this, right? Anybody ever felt that way? Right? You're, you're like, oh man, if I could just not be around like, this this would be really nice i hear a lot of times when people are like more miserable in their jobs than when they're happy in their jobs but i remember that piece of advice my pastoral ministry professor gave to me so if you're not all in and you could find something else that brings you joy go and do it and i can say without a shadow of a doubt right here right now in this moment while pastoral ministry is hard there's nothing more i would rather do i literally can't think of anything else i'd rather do i love being a pastor Rachel loves working in schools with kids who have needs and working with their families. She loves providing counseling to those that are hurting. Now, there are days that we don't love those things. But more often than not, we look at it and go, there is real joy. There's real joy when I get somebody and have a conversation and they get the Bible. I'm like, yeah, that, there's great joy in that. You can work, friends, in such a way that you actually enjoy the labor that you have. The, pre the preacher's emphasis is on enjoying the fruits of your labor here. 
So I, I've said before in our sermon series that working isn't only about loving what you do, right? The key word there is only. You don't just have to love what you do. There are going to be some of you that work jobs in situations that you don't love, but they provide real things with real benefits from your real labor for your real family. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that because you don't love it, you need to leave, okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to stay either. Now, there are going to be up and down seasons in your job, but you can love what you do. I often talk to older guys who have been working, like, I remember, like my grandpa right now, he, he is, uh, he's a retired mechanic. His job now, when he comes home, he goes and works at a golf course on golf carts. He's still doing mechanic stuff, but he loves golf. So he goes and he works on golf carts, and he's like, why would I stop working? <laughs> I love doing this. It brings me so much joy, right? There are some guys, they just can't slow down, right? And it's like, if I didn't have the opportunity to do something, I would lose my mind, <laughs> right? Now, okay, that, that might be a real thing. You can love what you do. But in the, the seasons that it's hard, friends, I want you to remember this. What do you love about your job? Remember the time you made a difference? Remember the time where you got to make a real impact in your context? Hold on to those moments. Let those encourage you in those moments where you're like, I just want to leave this place and this setting. He also says, eat and drink. Enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? So uh, as a good Baptist, I can say, Food is delicious. Amen? Amen, right? Enjoy what you eat. Enjoy what you drink. Moderation is key, right? You can always do too much. You can also do too little. Don't be afraid to eat some protein. You might actually need it, right? Red meat is okay. <laughs> Ask Jordan Peterson. He'll tell you. That's <laughs> right? all he eats. Food is good. The labor of our work is good. It produces good for us. But he also says here about something about wealth. He says, to the one who has riches, God has given them, and they're to be enjoyed. So there are situations where wealth can be used positively. We often hear about the negatives, but there are indeed situations where we can use our wealth in a way that glorifies God and in a way that we're not enslaved to it. So how should we use our money? I want us to consider first the New Testament warning from Jesus that we can't have two masters. We can't have the master of money and the master of God. We need to just make sure that money is in its proper place and God is primarily driving us. But I also want you to hear some helpful principles. Like when you have money, use it to enjoy the experiences of life that God has given you. Use your money to help others. Ultimately, use your money for the kingdom. Invest in gospel-glorifying, godly efforts. And recognize that sometimes your investment doesn't mean that you're going to bear fruit right away, that it may take time. So we can use our money in a way that glorifies God. But all of this joy, whether it's in the experiences of life, the labor of life, the things that God has given to us, notice that all of this is contingent upon what? Enjoying God himself. Enjoying God himself. Good old Johnny Pipes, right? John Piper is 
a great example to us. He would highlight again and again what he calls Christian hedonism to us, the idea of enjoying God to the fullest. Recently, a book came out called Friendship with God by Mike McKinley. I'm really excited to, to read that soon. But it's this idea that when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus, not only are we united to him, but we actually get to commune with him. We get to commune with the living God. He knows us, he loves us, and he wants to be with us. That's an amazing reality, that God would want to be with his people. It's not just that he's forming us so that we can all belong in the same tribe. It's that that tribe actually interacts together, that we get to actually be with the living God. His word teaches us. So we can find joy in a chaotic world as we repent of our sin, trust in Jesus. And in the world of chaos, we need to remember to work hard and to enjoy what God has given. Now, I'm really excited what the preacher is going to continue to teach us as we come to Ecclesiastes. I hope today we walk away at least submitting ourselves to the joy of God, pursuing him, maybe thinking outside of just corruption and greed and maybe the hard circumstances of our life and going, Lord, where have you brought us joy and how can we celebrate that? Let's pray and then I'm going to give you some instructions about how to pray together in light of that. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of the gospel, the gospel that redeems us, the, the Savior who saves we pray as we spend some time praying together briefly that you would encourage us together as we rub shoulders, as we look to this world that seems chaotic. May we remind ourselves of the joy and hope we have in Christ.